Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast, an unofficial podcast created by members of the Ask Different community about Apple and related technologies. This is episode number eight, recorded June 19th, 2011. I'm Kyle Cronin, and with me is Jason Salas. Jason, say something witty for me. Good afternoon, Kyle. I'm coming to you with currently 30, 30 mile an hour winds, and uh, should one decide to take me away, I hope the Cat 5 cord is long enough to continue to reach. I, I have no idea what to say to something like that, so I'm just going to turn it right over to my other co-host today, Nathan Greenstein. Nathan. Hi. I I don't have anything exciting like that. It's just kind of cloudy here. <laughs> cloudy. Cloudy. Oh. Yeah, it's Seattle. For for Washington, imagine that. Well, um, I imagine that the weather um, outside my window is, is sunny and warm, although I have my shades drawn, so uh, I, I'm i not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> it could be a torrential it, downfall, and you'd be completely unaware. It could be. I mean, these headphones are very good. They, they prevent me from hearing a lot of stuff that's going on, so who knows? <laughs> Um, so I just want to get right uh, right down to it um, with some Ask Different news. We've actually – well, it's not really site news so much as podcast news. Uh, we're actually working on an ad, uh, and it's going to be displayed on the right-hand side of, of Ask Different uh, to sort of uh, promote the podcast. And hopefully the ad will be available um, by the time that this podcast is up. So – uh, in order for the ad to show up, it has to have a certain number of votes. So we will sh- we will drop a, a link in the show notes for you to uh, go to the meta post and then vote up the ad. We hope you will because it'll increase the visibility of the podcast on the Ask a Different site. Get uh, get more people in listening and and get the community more engaged. So Nathan's been working hard on that. And I've actually kind of wondered, because this, this ad is going to take the place of the questions that you often see on the right-hand side, is it site-specific or is it actually going to be network-wide? It's site-specific, um, but, I mean, it'll rotate. So you will, you'll, you'll still see the, the Twitter ad. You'll still see uh, questions for other sites, but occasionally you'll also see uh, our, our, the ad for our podcast. So I, I hope you guys are gonna gonna like it. We've sort of gone with a bit of a lion theme, and uh, and uh, we're, we're liking what we see so far. So I hope you guys will too. Uh, so also on Stack Exchange, more general Stack Exchange news is um, that the Stack Exchange store has launched, and on there you can buy hoodies, shirts, pens, even beer steins uh that bear the uh stack exchange logo or the logo of i believe stack overflow server fault or super user uh they don't actually have any ask different specific merchandise right now but uh i believe that they're working on that and hopefully you'll be able to get ask different pens and shirts and whatever uh soon stack exchange has also debuted a button but it's not one that you can buy uh, one of the recent changes that they made across all of their sites is that in addition to sharing a question on Facebook or Twitter, they've also added a LinkedIn button so that you can post a specific question and any commentary that you want to add to it into your LinkedIn stream. Kind of a surprise because LinkedIn isn't really considered one of those general sharing social networks, but it has a 
it has a standard stream feature like Twitter and Facebook. So for the the fact that so many of these topics in Stack Exchange on certain sites can be so professionally geared, they've enabled the ability to add this into their into their update stream, and and it's a it's a worthwhile network for this information to go out to. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of of buttons for like Facebook and Twitter and stuff, there was actually a discussion on their most recent Stack Exchange podcast about the 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 like buttons that facebook and other companies are sort of promoting to sites to sort of distribute um and and have have the functionality so that people can like the content on those sites uh and the the conversation sort of initially focused around how facebook was going to use whether or not people like certain sites to offer uh, like better search terms so you know you'd be able to um rather search results so you'd be able to get results that um, Facebook has determined that you will uh, like as opposed to stuff that's just more generic uh, but then the conversation also turned to um, I actually made the comment that the the like buttons are actually much more insidious than that because once you have those like buttons on on those third party sites and, and you're logged into Facebook and, it, and maybe even if you're not they can still track by IP they will know exactly who has visited what site when all that stuff so uh, it's it's a pretty insidious way of Facebook being able to monitor the traffic on a, a non-trivial portion of the internet. What I found pretty interesting in all this is that um, there's an application that got quite a bit of buzz last week called Ghostery. Uh, it's a privacy. It's a plugin that runs in uh, Internet Explorer to a limited extent, and then of course Firefox and Chrome. I think Safari was in there as well. Safari too. Yeah, and the premises of it is that it will let you see the ad networks and the tracking cookies and all of those uh, all of those quasi nefarious things that a lot of people don't like seeing it'll allow you to see what's being used on the page you're visiting and then selectively or globally to the extent that it recognizes the ad network uh, block that that cookie from being block that traffic from going to the particular site so you have quantcast quantserve google analytics um, and then, of course, the entirety of the tweet button, the Facebook send, the Facebook like, uh, even LinkedIn send that I saw pop up on TechCrunch. Um, but what was interesting in all of that is that those tracking methods are actually not employed by Stack Exchange. But if you go to TechCrunch or any other blog that has the the 200 network share widget, um, Ghostry just lights up like a like a Christmas tree. Um, and it's I didn't I wasn't even aware that you can do it as primitively like that with sending content, but Stack Exchange does, which is probably probably more the feeling of the operation of the site in general as opposed to something like TechCrunch, which is really you know into visitor stats and really into this kind of information. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure the service that they use, but I believe that all that sort of you know post to Twitter, post to Facebook, that's actually handled uh, through a single service. And uh, the reason why they're not tracking it all is because the images are just hosted on Stack Overflow servers, and they're just regular images, and then it's only when you actually click the link that it actually transmits any information, which is good. Um, although, I mean, just to sort of throw this out there, uh, Stack Overflow does have uh, Google Analytics, and they do use Quantcast. So they do have those two... Um, tracking features embedded on their site but it's yes you're sending information to google um and yes they're obviously going to be aware of it um 
but I think it's it's I don't think it's specifically tied to a specific Google user. So all Google really knows is that you know someone from this IP viewed this site at this time. Um, but whereas with Facebook, they actually uh, when you whenever you visit TechCrunch or something like that, they actually have those little embedded Facebook things that. Uh, read your Facebook cookie and then transmit that to Facebook, and then they're able to correlate all your traffic with, with your Facebook account, which is you know it's it's pretty disturbing. Yeah, and that's why they're able to do things like tell you which of your friends have already liked a, a page as a, a site as a whole or a specific page, a specific article, what have you. Uh, I yeah, I didn't mean to infer that Stack Exchange doesn't use any tracking cookies whatsoever. There is a small handful that I see on uh, a lot of the Stack Exchange network. Uh, a couple of the uh, extraneous sites like OData and whatnot only have Google Analytics, but yeah, Quant, uh, QuantServe and Google Analytics, uh, Google Analytics are the two that I see most often. Just generally browsing around, as opposed to a blog that has more more than I care to read off at the moment. Yeah, I'm mainly I'm mainly concerned with um, with the like you know, with Facebook and all those other. Um... Well, not all those others, but just Facebook and a few other services that I don't really want to to know um, which sites I'm visiting. So I use a little uh, Chrome extension called Disconnect that uh, will block those those things from Google being able to see them. The thing about the Google Analytics uh, tracking is they don't display to the webmaster who's put the analytics code on their page. They don't display to them linked Google accounts or what other sites these people have gone to. But we've got no way of knowing if they use that information internally. I would not be surprised if Google is taking all this this incredible amount of data that they can gather with Google Analytics and doing stuff for their own purposes internally with analyzing that data in terms of which user goes to which site and um, you know common in, common uh, interests between uh, how to frame that. I don't know, but. I don't want to drill too deep into the technical details of this, but is that something, can they even collect the user information? Because Google Analytics is just a JavaScript file right. with a specific site-specific reference. It collects IP, and they also collect IP in all their services, so they, they may be able to get some kind of a reasonably yeah, good correlation I, I guess there. by corrobor- yeah, correlation, corroboration, that you can put those, you can put yeah. two and two together in that regard. And that's not, that's not 100% reliable, but it's, it's certainly something, and... And when you've got such a massive amount of data, something is frequently good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, Google sort of ha- has, you can sort of see um, a part of their approach has been to sort of insert themselves into like the fabric of the internet in addition to providing this very useful analytics service um, that obviously they can they can use the data for their own purposes. Uh, for example, they also provide uh, like stuff like FeedBurner. Uh, we actually use FeedBurner for this podcast. Um, but, I mean, presumably they would know... Um, which IPs are downloading the feeds and, and, and stuff like that. So, um, but I think I, I'm not nearly as worried about Google having that kind of information as I am with Facebook. I mean, Google, oh, yeah, yeah I, I Google has a very good track record of of protecting not being user. Medieval. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they've do, they've done a, f- a few sort of questionable things in the past, um, and. Uh, but I, I, I think that one of the things that they've always um, maintained is um, the, the, the sort of the privacy of, of users, at least to outside influences, you know, like don't tell Gruber that. What do you mean? Uh, the, 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 he one of his running memes right now is talking about how 
he'll he'll quote a post and then his commentary on the post is don't be evil and it's usually a lot of it is usually in context of android and i think to an extent there was something about chrome os recently yeah um everybody you know everybody's it's it's one part an eye of the beholder thing but there are other there are other examples that are blatantly like they made the wrong choice um and that was the initial outroll uh, the initial rollout of buzz um and to the extent that that leaked information to people that you have may have set not able to see or if you're more a private profile yeah i i think that i think that the buzz thing there was like there was one thing where uh they sort of had an automatic sort of follow based on uh people emailing and there was i think there was like some case where uh some like some woman was trying to get away from her abusive husband or something and then uh, Google Buzz saw that uh, Google saw that oh yeah these people have have emailed each other a bunch in the past let's let's sort of associate them and I think that I think that that caused problems but I think I think it's telling that you can point to like one specific instance uh, whereas uh, Facebook has um, a history of just completely disregarding um, user privacy whenever it suits them the public wall the first the initial rollout of uh, Facebook Beacon. Yeah, um, I think I heard something about their if the uh, FQL, the Facebook query language, still exists. I think I heard something about that that when they first really actually started rolling out privacy controls, that FQL ignored it completely. So people were just, you know, writing writing queries around it to get information on whoever they wanted to the extent that FQL actually exposed resources. Yeah, and there was also like a bunch of insecurities in in how the um... The, the sort of Facebook apps were created and, and oh yeah that and that even culminated in the security incident most recently that uh it was like it, it was like security token reuse the, the the long and the short of it is that since since this specifically has gotten brought up if anybody has not changed their Facebook password in the last month to month and a half it suggested that you do because there was an there was an application security compromise that allows any application to keep reusing what amounts to an always valid token and that'll start changing if you change your password but you kind of need to do that it's kind of important and really hasn't to the to the best of my reading hasn't gotten terribly much coverage yeah it's it, it it's really only an issue i think if you if you use that specific app um and I know that I'm not uh, vulnerable because I didn't use any apps on Facebook. <laughs> Me neither. So, so I don't um, even use the Facebook on Facebook. One of the one of the telling things about my Facebook password is that um, I believe you're required to have at least six characters now. My my Facebook password is so old that it is. I should I should say this on the podcast, but I don't care. It's five characters. It's that old. It's before the the current password um, restrictions. Is that like a badge of pride, like six or seven digit ICQ numbers? Kind of. <laughs> well, it's one of those things. It's it's a. Um, I I don't I don't put any like personal information in Facebook, and B I don't use Facebook for anything. I mean, I have an account just I don't know just so that I can have it, and you know I kind of I, I kind of like having you know Facebook dot com slash Kyle dot Cronin. I'm I'm really glad I was able to sort of snag that. Um, <laughs> But I mean, uh, apart from that, I don't really, ha- I don't use Facebook at all. So, um, I mean, I-, I think I'll probably change my password after this show just because I mentioned how insecure <laughs> it was. But at the same time, you know, it's just one of those things that um, I don't, I don't care at all about. So, um, is your password hello? 
No, no. It's, is your password Kyle C? It's it's letters and numbers. You know, it's it's a random thing, but it's uh, it's yeah, it's not as long as as it should be, especially given our our um, talking about password security on a on previous shows. So yeah, uh, I've got a decent Facebook password, but I think I use it for one or two other sites like YouTube, which are also accounts I don't really care about, but probably ought to make the facebook one unique because that's probably the one i trust the least yeah speaking of passwords um i know this is like completely off topic and we didn't plan for this at all so (laughs) but speaking of passwords um i was i was actually thinking recently about um the passwords on your apple account um and how uh your 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 apple account your apple id is becoming more and more important and like you know now it's not just um itunes purchases now it's uh you know find your iphone and there's a bunch of other stuff um, pretty soon it's going to be your entire yeah. activation and your entire personal data as exactly yeah 5. yeah with, with i yeah with icloud you know you got your your ios backups and stuff like that so i mean it's become very important and you know we've been encouraging people to use stronger and passwords because sometimes people have you know they created the account a few years ago and it wasn't that important then but you know it's suddenly become more important but i think it's it's really annoying that entering a complex password is really difficult on an iOS device and that you have to do it anytime you're going to uh, buy an app or a song or whatever. And so what I what I would really want to see Apple do is to uh, you know require an initial a very strong password initially when you when you associate that um, that Apple account with that iOS device. But then once you're signed in, um, allow you to just uh, um, put in a pin like a, a four digit pin or whatever that you can use to uh, basically authorize purchases um, so that, you know, you can have a very strong password, uh, but at the same time on your specific device that you don't have to constantly enter that really strong password. So, it, you know, it would, it or would even just some kind of a two factor uh, authentication thing like Google's rolled out where you can put in a decent password and then get a text message or use the iPhone app with the the unique or, well not unique with the time the stamped time code pin. yeah right the time limited code i feel i feel obligated to point out because i've actually been dealing with this lately that um all one time pin systems backed by the RSA corporation are now worthless and that's because the they uh, a malicious uh, the hacker with malicious intent compromised a the computer of an office worker and managed to find uh i am not i'm not sure of the specific t- technical vocabulary but it's ba- it's essentially the private key with which all of those time-based calculations are derived from because the server has to come up with the same code at the same time that the client does right and yeah. rsa's entire sales of their secure id service are now worthless uh because there's the, the information is available you know if, if you know if you know how to find it this key information is available and the calculation knowing all of the all of the values now takes no time whatsoever i don't know what this means for verisign's one-time token system i don't know what this means for google paypal nor blizzards um but i, I just felt compelled to say to, to point out that even one-time pin systems are imperfect should the worst happen to the security My dad's office of used it. rsa yeah, exactly. Not to der- not to derail the point too much, and I I generally agree that in a very 
in something that's supposed to be very secure and specific to you, that being a phone, notably, uh, that uh, a system such as this to have a high personal security, lower, uh, what's the term, password entropy security can add a worthwhile convenience to something that generally still has to be very secure. I think if it's a pain to type a complicated password, people are not going to choose a complicated password. Exactly. And you know, so you've was... got to make it easy for them to secure their accounts. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly I was I, I was I was trying to make that point, but I didn't actually say those words and I'm glad you did, Nathan, because that's exactly what it what that's what it's all about. You know, the only way you're gonna get people to secure their accounts is to make it is to at least not make it inconvenient to do so. And and also, I mean, what's the deal with uh requiring a four digit pin? I mean why can't I enter like a five, six, seven digit pin on my on my phone? I mean And showing showing the uh the last letter if it's the, the complicated what's it called use complex pin or something if you if you get letters and symbols for the lock screen on an iphone help me out yeah yeah well basically you know if you do if you use the complicated thing it's just it's just like a regular password Um, except that it shows what you type as you type it like i looked looked over somebody's shoulder saw what their lock screen code was without a problem well isn't is that isn't that the thing where it will show you the last the last thing that you typed right but Um, i just watched them type it and it was easy to yeah you're such a hacker. I guess I had a little context. I guessed her password and it was right. <laughs> I confirmed that she was. Yeah. Yeah, you're the it's if you if you keep all the passcode security standard, then you get the screen with the four boxes that fill in numeric right. only. And you can change it to use complex password and you get a traditional keyboard and you can use any character under the sun. I kinda like the middle ground that the last character visible provides because it doesn't stay there eternally. Although I can also understand that if somebody's actively paying attention and I'm not, you know, I'm not aware of my surroundings, I type really fast to the extent that it's actually it may be possible to read just based off the general scanning because of how quick I can whiz through my password. So all the all the letters show up seamlessly one after the other. Right. Uh, yeah, they encrypt after the fact, but if you only... Or I'm sorry, if they, they turn into the bullets after the fact, but if you pay attention to only the last letter each time, it's not unreasonable to read it off exactly in that manner. Yeah, I like it because um, I frequently um, have... I, I make entry errors on that iPhone keyboard, and... If I don't have that visual feedback, then, you know, there's going to be a time when I really need to unlock my phone and then, you know, I'm really frustrated and it's, you know, I, I keep entering it in wrong and, and it, it'll be a, a bit of a pain. Um, but, I mean, there's there's no reason why, you know, you necessarily can't have like a like an eight-digit pin, you know. Just give me, sure. the, just give me the numeric keys. You know, they're bigger, they're easier to hit. Um, but allow me to put in more of them so that it's it's less likely that someone that's sort of looking over my shoulder will be able to remember all the things that I'm putting in. The surprising thing is even with the keypad being as large as it is, I still typo it more often than I care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I actually mentioned this on the, on the uh, show previously is that my muscle memory is now trained to type the code twice because the first time I always invariably either hit the wrong number or... A- or hit emergency call, which just adds uh, oh. adds time to yeah yeah exactly that reaction exactly is my is my direct <laughs> feeling on this. Yeah, I I occasionally hit that emergency call button as well. I mean, what I would like um my my parents have a security system in their house where if you enter the wrong if you enter a wrong number, all you got to do is you just start from the beginning. So it's like oh I enter the wrong number. I'll just start from the beginning. I'll enter the code again. But on the iPhone, you have to go back, 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 back. Okay, got to enter my right code now, you know? Oh, that's weird, though, because on, on Mac OS X, it'll just 
shake back and forth and empty out. You can fill the pin to completion and have it say invalid code and start over. Right. Uh, but when you know, when you know, it's usually a quicker, a quicker recall oh, to just hit the delete, and you can delete up to three characters. And yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like you know, you you know, you entered something in wrong, and right. you're like, okay. well, you know, now I got to go back. And, and then on a, on a desktop, you've got Command A or Command Delete that stuff just to or just enter the can immediately end it unless it's like a web page or something that that'll actually request to the server and take a while mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you do a wrong one yeah you know typing my I, I guess i'm probably oversensitized to the uh the you know somebody's looking over my shoulder reading my password because i enter my password on my kindle which the only way to do symbols and numbers is with a little symbols palette and so you've and it doesn't, I mean, basically it's a, a little grid, like a, you know, a virtual keyboard. And you, you use these little arrow keys to go between button to go between, uh, characters. And the one you're currently selected has a little, you know, a circle around it. And so then you push and, en- you know, you push enter to add that character to the, the text field. So, basically, so what you're saying is you can't even, you can't tap on the specific special character. You have to use a, a scroller widget with like a left. Yeah. And it's right. not a touch screen. So then you, you know, anybody watching can see the, uh, this dark circle moving around and then pausing each time on a, on every character that I actually put in. So I really, I basically kind of put it under my chair or whatever, when I'm entering my, you know, a password I care about on my Kindle, because it would be so trivial for anyone watching me to just figure out which which ones i uh, go to why don't you just use like a really long uh just letter password it's my google account and that sort of thing that uh, i want to keep i want to keep secure on i mean the kindle the kindle lock code i don't care about because nobody's gonna steal my kindle they're gonna read all your books <laughs> yeah i can redownload them from o'reilly though so it's all good but um i i guess that's probably uh, it, it, from what you guys have said it seems like it's a pretty manageable thing with it showing the last character on the iphone screen yeah it's something that um i i i think it's the the convenience is is worth it in the potential uh loss of security um just because you know if you entered stuff in wrong then you might have to enter it in multiple times and if someone's watching you do that then you know watching you enter the same password multiple times they're more likely to be able to figure it out than if they just sort of um are able to glance at your screen and see all the characters, which, I mean, unless you're using like a like a dictionary word, you know, there's if they're missing a character, then there's still it's still very difficult to to open the device. So I just want to change gears a little bit. Uh, we were talking about Facebook earlier, and I just wanted to get back to it uh, because there was uh, there was an article on TechCrunch about something called Project Spartan, and it's really interesting. Um, because apparently Facebook is building their own sort of app store, but instead of actually producing like physical binaries that you download onto uh, the device of your choice, it's sort of similar to Google's uh, web app store in that um, you sort of get access to it through Facebook, uh, and, but but they also provide like uh, in-app, uh, well, I don't know if they provide in-app purchases, but they provide a purchasing system uh, through Facebook credits that you can use to buy the apps um, and sort of runs in, in the browser on mobile Safari. And so the apps are HTML5. Exactly, yes. So, yes. Um, and so basically TechCrunch is saying that this is sort of positioned against um, against Apple's 
App Store. Um, in that Facebook is using the the web stuff because they know that that's something that they can control on on iOS. The only thing that they can control. Pretty much, yeah. Um, and actually, you know, when when Apple released the iPhone without any kind of a native SDK, that people immediately started building HTML5 apps for it because they wanted to be able to write software for the iPhone. And so, actually, I think it's mainly left over from that time. The iPhone has great support for web apps, even, you know, with or without a Facebook wrapper. They've got great support for web apps in terms of adding it to the homepage, access even to some of the some of the HTML5 stuff that's not widely supported, like storage, like local storage. Um, so you can really write a good web app and with or without the Facebook wrapper, and it'll work very well on the iPhone, even offline, without without a whole lot of extra work from the developer. So I this this kind of makes me feel like Facebook is trying to revive this uh, web app thing that that was actually really good, but then people kind of started ignoring when the app store came out yeah i don't think this is actually going to be that popular i mean i know some of the fa- the the zynga diehards or whatever are going to want to play farmville um <laughs> but there's already an iphone app for Farmville. that's true that is true uh, but yeah I, I i think that the the experience of using one of those um uh, those web apps on on an ios device or even on a computer is just it it, it falls so far short of the experience of using a native app that i mean unless there's like unless there is no native app that does that specific thing um i could see people just going to the app store first you know the the apple's app store first as opposed to facebook's i'm i i don't know this is one of those things that that has a lot of different detail and also the unfortunate part of it is the fact that the only app that i use on facebook is the twitter app and that's just to pipe my tweets into facebook um so as far as buying credits and using these applications and being able to use them whether it be in the facebook app or on in safari on facebook is just completely irrelevant to me um it's i'm actually looking at my list of applications right now that are bookmarked are what's the terminology for this uh, web pages that have been saved to the home screen. And I only have six of them. Uh, I have Never Morgan's Glyphboard. I have the YouTube application, the YouTube web application bookmark that I've never touched. Uh, ironically enough, I whenever I watch something YouTube on my iPhone, I just go to youtube.com and Safari. Um, and then the web app version of Latitude that I've since stopped relying on since they actually have an application version uh, I have a specific view of Last.fm that I reference every once in a while. And then I have the Twitter web, web application, just mostly for testing purposes. I did that reasonably recently. And then I have a bookmark called 8-Bit, which is a, uh, well, to the best of my knowledge, a given, given that it's still referencing Meet Us at South by Southwest, uh, it's a... Four, uh, four square like location system that I just kind of play around with that the the kicker of it was that your avatar is repre- everything's represented with very large pixely 8-bit graphics cute but it's already gone by the wayside again because it's still saying say hi to us at South by Southwest and you can win an 8-bit Nintendo cartridge yay yeah whatever um, 
the possibility is there, and I think Kyle, you already said it best that if there's some if there's a site that does something that nobody else does that it's worthwhile to have, and the fact that this is supported makes it that much better. And the web is here, and there will be there will be use cases for it. That's why we visit websites on a daily basis. But the latitude application is ridiculously laggy compared to the. Uh, the the Latitude web app is ridiculously laggy because the fact that the request has to take place. Um, the 8-bit application, web application, sucks compared to Latitude or even Facebook check-ins or anything else that I've ever used. And that's because all of these events have to get processed and returned back. I think there's some optimizations that people really haven't taken advantage of. But generally speaking, it's slower. It's it just Well, they added, it, they added the faster JavaScript engine to home screen web apps which should make a considerable difference yeah and that that will fix anything that's just purely rendering purely drawing but these things that have to phone home and can't necessarily queue locally you're gonna you're you have an inherent delay because of that communication the same is true of of web driven desktop apps but at least so many things about the interface there there are so so many fewer elements of the interface that have to call out and can just do what you said as soon as you told it to do it yeah the only uh mobile web app that i really uh use on my iphone is gmail and that's just because up until recently um google sync did not support searching on the server uh through the uh, through the uh the the native mail app on on the iphone um Although they they say that they've changed that, so I'm gonna have to look into it again. Um, but you know, typically I'll I'll be like, oh, well, I need to find this email, but I received it you know two months ago or something like that, and it's definitely not on my phone, so I have to go into the Gmail app and then do the search through that. But that's really the only thing that I use, like a, a web app. Did my... you have the Gmail account configured with the Exchange instructions? Like yeah. The, the, okay. Yeah. I've, I've always just set it up as stock IMAP, and I don't. Oh. I don't explicitly recall that I've searched for something in the past, but I, at the same time, I swear that I would have had to on my iPad, and I, I never dealt with Exchange. I never really wanted to, and I'm pretty sure the stock searching capabilities, the stock IMAP searching capabilities, and the mail application let me do that. Yeah, I think the IMAP th- thing does work, um, but I, I really like the Exchange support for, for my gmail account just because it provides uh, push support it gives me calendar sync contact sync it uh i don't know there's just a, there's just a few other things that just make it uh nice and it seems to me the sort of like the the direction that google's pushing uh given their they, they've recently updated sync to uh again like i mentioned they can do search on the server they can now you can send mail um like as a different email address or something to that effect um I'm not sure. We'll put the the link in the show notes um, for for the stuff that they've updated, but uh, it's definitely something that they're working on and they're pushing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it is kind of interesting that they're using uh, a Microsoft protocol to s- support um, interaction between Google services and Apple's devices. It's just kind of, you know, it's the natural progression of what we do with these web services, uh, where it used to be Pop3 and IMAP that we just need to get our mail and things like iOS and the notes. Uh, the notes being stored in an email app is kind of uh, shoehorning it in. Uh, it's been the, um, the notes are represented as an email message, and with Apple's mail application, it just kind of shows up in a specially formatted manner, that being the marker felt font and obviously the, the yellow notepad uh, background. 
But with these web services now hosting our identity and all things associated, the exchange protocol is very mature to be able to show you your calendar events and provide you with your contact information. So it was a, it was a very natural extension for them to make. It was definitely a very smart decision. Yeah, I'm sort of looking forward to see um, the stuff that iCloud can do. Um, and if if iCloud meets my needs for for mail, um, I I think that I I could conceivably give up a a web browser based client for the the native clients in line in iOS five. But and the, it, the framework's already there. We've been able to we've been able to use uh, push enabled mail systems for some time, but the the emphasis there being push enabled through the uh, I believe it still takes place in the IMAP protocol, though I'm not 100% sure about that. Yeah, I've never had great luck with push IMAP. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, the exchange support for, for push is better, uh, but I'm assuming that uh, Apple's you know primary service, you know iCloud, will have the best push support on the device because that seems to be... I mean, basically at the heart of it, iCloud is just a giant push machine. You know? Um, like all, all these things about apps... You know, pushing apps to different devices, pushing contacts, pushing email, blah blah blah. It's all push. That's all it is. And I mean, they were explicit about this in the in the keynote. They said, you know, we've had a lot of experience. You know, we, we've done over a hundred billion push messages to various iOS devices, and we're taking that experience and we're sort of expanding it. So they're throwing away the idea of like IMAP or um, what's the CalDAV for the calendar sync. They're just mm. that's gone. It's just all push. And so what I'm, you're saying is iCloud is pushy. Yes. Not to be confused with being a pushover. <laughs> I, I would say that, Jason, yes. <laughs> okay. <That's laughs> uh, so, so just sort of wrap up on Project Spartan. Um, it's kind of an interesting idea, and it's something that Apple sort of, you know, toyed with in the past. But I think that especially since they've had such great luck and such – all this money coming in for the the app store that it's it's something that it's it's you you really can't compete with that at least on on iOS. Um, now if they if they had it sort of like it was like multiple platforms like you know you could buy an app uh, a web app on your iOS device and then you could use it later on your Android device. I mean that might make it interesting, but I think as it stands, it's really it's not interesting at all. And I, I'm not so quick to discount it for the sole reason that Zynga is a very, very, very profitable company. Yes, just despite all, you know, rationality, they people seem to be addicted to their their stupid games. So I, I mean, I won't, I won't discount anything. <laughs> I don't know. There, there's just a lot of interesting things about Zynga coming out, like. Um, I remember an article some time ago. Zynga, the the Farmville, that the top like ten thousand players or something like that were going to be able to have a virtual interface to maintaining a, fa- a physical farm, uh, or it was like basically hiring the top ten thousand players to manage a farm, or it was something to that extent. I forget all the details, but it's very similar to what the uh, what the U.S. Army did with America's Army. And that they gave people this very technically competent, this very powerful first-person shooter game, and they would recruit the best players for their strategic and uh, strategic in the field and strategic commanding capabilities. It's it's it takes advantage of one's interest, but there's the wide possibility for 
you know, doing good with that, putting putting their talent and their skills to use. What was the name of that movie that uh, uh, the last Starfighter? I think it was where there was actually like this arcade game, and then like if you beat the arcade game, then like there was these aliens that picked you up and they. Yeah, I they... didn't see it. <laughs> okay, I did see Tron, however, and that's kind of similar, right? I guess. Right? I, I don't know. And I'm talking about 70s Tron. Not I, I have not seen Legacy yet, oddly enough. Ooh, 70s Tron was so... <laughs> I don't know. It, it, insert, insert uh, you know, terrible but funny yet amazing for its time, cult, etc. terminology it, here. It was so 70s. Yep, yep. I mean, it did the, the color, the trippy, all that. Yeah, it was pretty... I mean, I, I watched it for the first time... Uh, last year like and and it was kind of like eh, this is interesting uh especially uh jeff bridges i didn't really recognize him at all you know he looks quite different now <laughs> uh 30 years will do that to you uh 40 years will do that to you i think it's funny how like um i don't know if it's if it's a, a general thing but certain certain actors like they look very nondescript when they're young and then as they get older they sort of you know I don't know if it's just because I, I, I'm aware of them as an older actor, and then like looking back at, at them, you know, there's the the change is so large that they seem to be some sort of nondescript person, um, like Jeff Bridges, um, Al Pacino, um, like when I saw him in The Godfather, I was like, I didn't even know it was Al Pacino. I didn't make the connection; it was the same guy, um, to the same Al Pacino that sort of he's in like modern films. Um, I, I don't know. It's just kind of it's just kind of weird i like i like modern jeff bridges he's he's got a he's got a certain character down that wasn't quite present in the uh in in the tron movie uh so apple is now selling unlocked iphone 4s this is kind of big news kind of maybe i don't know (laughs) for the business types and that, that was the that was the predominant line that i took out of a lot of articles is that this isn't so much for the u.s because the two well, the two major U.S. carriers, those being uh, AT&T, of course, and T-Mobile, where there's all the there's the like the U.S. cellular, and uh, I think I think there's a couple um, Net Ten, I believe, is GSM because you can just take the SIM and keep using it as you keep renewing it. Um, the the predominant theme that came out of a lot of our articles about this was that it's not so much a good thing for the U.S., but it's a good thing for American businessmen that travel overseas regularly because instead of paying the ridiculous international roaming costs to AT&T, they can get a local SIM, they, they buy an unlocked phone, and then they can pop any other region's SIM in and uh, pay, you know, slightly elevated, no contract, but still drastically reduced local rates for a, a phone number local to the area that they travel to. Yeah, the prices are kind of crazy. I believe it's what six fifty for a sixteen gig, and then seven fifty uh, for a thirty-two. It just um, shows you how much is subsidized by the carriers and how much these things actually would cost compared to like an iPod. Oh, uh, I don't think I don't think those things cost that much to the carriers. They can't. Uh, they don't. Get, uh, you do yeah. the math, and the carriers getting well over two grand out of you over the course of a two-year contract, considering that you have to buy a, a voice plan and the hundred-dollar data plan practically. And your bill's going to be a hundred if you don't do any other cust- uh, any other customizations. Um, my 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 plan is approximately sixty dollars a month, um, and that's with a very very cheap uh, voice plan. And um, I think I, I think I still have the uh, two gig data plan, but still, I mean, sixty dollars a month 
um, how much of that is is if if the carriers are really buying this at say six hundred fifty dollars and I paid two hundred dollars, so that's four hundred and fifty dollars over your twenty four months. That's a little under twenty dollars a month that they would have to get from me just to pay back uh, the subsidy. But I mean, of that's course, cr- they also have to. You also have to pay for the service, right? Yeah, I don't. I don't, I definitely don't think the carriers are are paying this much. I think Apple's only selling them at this much because they don't want people to buy these unlocked phones. They want people to 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 get the care the uh, on contract phones. Um, and they are providing these phones exclusively for a very small uh, audience that that needs them, like like business people that will pay for it, or people that are intending to buy these phones to sell them overseas, where you know they could easily make a grand or more selling each phone. So, um, I it's it's interesting. I like the the idea of being able to own like my own unlocked iPhone, especially like uh, in the future. They're sort of talked about uh, maybe having a, a combination. Uh, GSM, CDMA, maybe even LTE phone, um, where you can, you know, you, if it's unlocked, you could just sort of walk over to Verizon, sign up for for stuff there. If you don't like Verizon, you can switch to AT and T. But um, um, it's it's not really viable right now because the hardware, you know, it's it, the hardware is basically uh, in the United States at least is sort of fixed to a specific carrier uh, in terms of the the kind of radios they have the 3g bands they support gsm versus cdma and to think that they would have to vary they'd have to very significantly widen the spectrum of gsm in order to actually be truly universal to the united states because t-mobile uses a different 3g frequency than at&t does yeah although i mean they on the teardown of the verizon iphone they um uh it's been shown that there's actually a combination qualcomm chip in there that can do like gsm and cdma um and there's sort of been rumors that the iPhone, f- well, the next iPhone, I should say. Um, I, I hope they call it the iPhone 5. Um, if they call it like the, the 4S or the 4G, I'll be severely disappointed. But <laughs> the next iPhone, uh, there's sort of, you know, not substantial rumors, but people have speculated that um, Apple prefers to have like a single SKU and a single product uh, to manufacture, which makes it easier for like distribution and stuff. And that um, they could very well uh, go for a single phone supporting both carriers, and an unlocked iPhone that supports uh, GSM and CDMA uh, would actually be something worth paying for. It'd be it'd blow every other phone out of the water because that hasn't existed. Uh, you buy you buy a world phone if you buy a world phone from Verizon, and I think there's like a BlackBerry version that was a world phone. It was world because the world was predominantly GSM, though there is you know. That there is similar GSM CDMA competition in some countries, um, but a world phone would just contain either the big four or five GSM frequencies. Uh, but to to have for Apple to debut the first universal phone would be that would, that'd be something worth talking about. Yeah, for the business class that actually needs to be that flexible, of course. Well, my hope is that. Um... When when the next iPhone comes out and then the iPhone four drops in price, that they will similarly drop the price of the unlocked phones and make them. I mean, they won't be cheap by any stretch of the imagination, but they they'll be more affordable than six hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's uh, that's iPhone one territory. <laughs> but just remember, remember the context when the iPhone first debuted, people. 
Uh, they they debuted unsubsidized and 2G only, not even 3G. And uh, they the sales for them were still pretty spectacular. And then Apple turned around and did 3G very shortly after when they realized what a hit they had on their hands. And uh, the, the sales numbers have only been increasing since. I don't know what Apple was thinking selling an unsubsidized phone <laughs> that was locked to a carrier. That doesn't make any sense. I, especially since it was uh, it was just a regular 2G phone, which means that you could use it on either AT&T or T-Mobile. You know, but it, it was locked to AT&T. Right, yeah. I mean, why would you why would you spend $500, $600 on something that, you know, could the you're not it's not subsidized in any way by the carrier, but at the same time, uh you know, um it's locked to that carrier. I think the features spoke for itself. Maybe. Maybe. Because the, the, the whole smartphone paradigm... I, I remember when I saw a BlackBerry for the first time, and I thought it was terrible. It was ugly. And at least the Treo that I had at the time was a little bit more... Kind of more modern. Like the, the render, the... I, I don't know if there's even a specific name for it, but the browser especially that picks out all but these couple of elements and presents it. It was nasty. It was ugly. The to the typesetting and everything else was just blocky and crude. Even even some mobile WAP websites that I that I had on a my very first flip phone uh, flip phone looked reasonably better than that. Uh, but the uh, the iPhone came out and everything's changed. It was an actual browser and pages looked like they did actually on your computer but on your phone. And that's that's why the original iPhone sold so well. How did you like your trio or trio or Um I don't I don't I don't really have good enough memories of it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I um I only asked because um before I I owned iOS devices, um I had Palm devices for years. Mm-hmm. Um I've actually, you know, not so much a phone, but I've been carrying like a personal digital assistant kind of thing, PDA, um, since I was, well, since I was Nathan's age. Um, <laughs> I started out with the Palm M100. I got that for my 13th birthday. And after that, I I did sort of a, a brief foray uh, with, uh, I had a Toshiba E310. It was a pocket PC. Uh, running Pocket PC 2002. That was basically that's that's Windows Mobile before it became Windows Mobile. <laughs> um, it was CE at the time, wasn't it? Well, it, they had the CE uh, for their larger devices, but then they also had a variant called Pocket PC, mm-hmm. and then they had then they actually had uh, a separate smartphone version, and then they also had a, a variant of the Pocket PC, which is like Pocket PC Phone, and then eventually they sort of combined them all into Windows Mobile at some point. Um, and that be basically uh, Windows Mobile 6.5 is basically um, the latest incarnation of that that line of, of stuff. I mean, it, it was nice. Um, it was uh, I, I liked the fa- at the time I used um, a Windows computer and an Outlook and stuff, and it was it was nice and uh, it, it synchronized well and stuff. But uh, it was kind of slow, you know. <laughs> <laughs> After the, and after, here I am, 2011, never having used a a phone beyond for anything other than talking. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a phone. It was just it was just a right, pocket PC, any mobile device. Yeah, and it was it's kind of weird to talk about this because, um, like my my subsequent two devices were both Palm devices: the Palm Tungsten E and then the Palm Tungsten T5, which are very similar, um, but they ran like Palm OS five, um, but. 
none of those four devices had either cellular capability or Wi-Fi. So you can imagine it was kind of the the use cases were kind of limited, especially considering most of the stuff I do now on my iPhone, you know, requires a network and some sync here, capacity. sync there, Dropbox, you know, the the yeah. sync cable itself, everything just take care of it for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and sort of after those, I went to my iPhone 3G, and then now I have an iPhone 4. And it's kind of weird, but uh, the other day I was actually at the Apple Store because um, my iPhone f- I developed a crack on my iPhone 4 screen, and I was basically told that because the the screen was sort of an integrated component and they can't replace it, that they would uh, um, they would quote unquote do a repair, which is basically give me a new iPhone for two hundred dollars. <laughs> And I, I politely declined that. Um, now I realize a crack. I, I, I don't know how this crack developed. Um, you didn't drop it or, or put uh, something on it? None of that usual? No. Um, basically what I did was I just, like one night I just stood, I put it on my nightstand and the next morning uh, I, I I noticed the crack. Now I can't say for certain whether or not um, the crack wasn't there the night before, but, you know, just sort of, I, I noticed it that morning. Um and I realized I, I recognized you know it's it's considered probably accidental damage or whatever. Um, but at the same time, you know, I have to say that this this iPhone is like the the most fragile of these of these long line of devices that I've ever owned. Um, my 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 palms especially those were those things were solid. Um, the, the, they didn't really have any like glass screens or anything like that. But um, you you could drop those things. You could. Uh, you could do a lot of those, a lot of those things, and they would still, they'd still run, they'd still work, they'd still be fine. Um, I even um, my T5. Oh man, um, this was <laughs> at, this was after my senior year in high school. My family took a trip to Florida, um, and we went to some sort of roller coaster place. Anyway, they had little lockers that you could put stuff in, um, and I put my, you know, among other things, my my tungsten t5 in there and we went on like a roller coaster and then we came back we opened the locker and then uh my my t5 basically fell right onto there was basically rocks underneath (laughs) boom and there was there was a scuff on the on the bottom left sort of section of the device but other than that the device still worked perfectly you know the screen was absolutely fine that was a tough device um and to sort of contrast that with my iPhone 4, um, a, f- a few weeks after I got it, um, I had uh, – I basically – I was walking down down the stairs um, in my parents' house and I – it sort of slipped out of my hand and it sort of fell onto the tile floor below. Now, I can understand something not – you know, not being totally fine once it falls onto a tile floor, especially from probably nine feet up. Um, but, I mean, the back of the screen shattered. Uh, not not screen the the back of the device shattered the glass on the back I'm like okay well you know my bad so I take it into the Apple Store um, and it's basically a thirty dollar repair to do that uh, which I was pleasantly surprised by uh, but when I got it the back, back of the the glass on the back isn't integrated it's just a piece of glass that you can put on exactly yeah exactly so uh, basically it was thirty dollars for the part and they just sort of swapped it out but once I you know, once I got it back and I was I was playing with it and, and I was trying to take some pictures with the flash and then the flash 
uh, anytime that the flash was going off, uh, it was completely clouding the, um, uh, the, the camera lens. So I couldn't take any pictures with the flash. So I took it back in and I demonstrated it. It was pretty easy to demonstrate. And they basically swapped it out for a new phone. And so I, I ran with that for uh, several months. Um, I don't remember. It was, it was a few months ago when I had, uh, I had noticed that there were scorch marks on the bottom of my phone, right, right near the dock connector. And there was a little bit of sort of like green exposed where it was probably like copper that was, I don't know, melted or something. It was, it was really bizarre. Uh, and I, I took it in and the guy's like, well, you know, there's probably some, some lint in there or something. And, you know, it got some moisture and you plugged it in. He's like, well, you know, I'll do like a one-time exception. I'll, I'll swap it out for you. And I'm like, okay, fine. Um, and, and he swapped it out and that was now my third <laughs> iPhone four. Um, the one I still actually have actually. Um, but when I went in there, uh, a few days ago, uh, the guy, he, well, he basically took my, um, identification number on the phone. He sort of ran back to the back of the store um, he must have looked it up in some sort of computer thing, and then he came back and he's like, "Yeah, actually, well, we did a one-time repair for for liquid damage, and <laughs> I mean, I'm not expecting him to, you know, to replace it. Obviously, it's it's considered to be um, user damage, accidental da- accidental damage, whatever. And I can understand that they don't want to uh, repair that, but he's like, "Yeah, it's liquid damage." I'm like, "Well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't liquid damage." And in fact, the the genius, the, the genius at the time that had looked at it, had sort of looked at those sensors that you know in your um, in your dock connector. There are some sensors that will, I think, they'll turn pink if they're exposed to to water, and these clearly weren't. And he confirmed that. Um, but at the same time, I just I just sort of have to marvel at the the fragility of the iPhone four because I've. This is this is like the, the the fourth problem that I've had with it, and I've had it for less than a year. And for all those other devices, I had them multiple years, and they developed few, if no, if if no problems at all. Um, like my iPhone three G, I mean, I've treated that the, my three G the same way that I'm treating my four, or that I had treated my iPhone four, and I mean the screen stayed fine. You know the. Uh, the only thing that really required any service was it was a little under a year after I bought it. The headphone jack, um, something about it was was preventing audio from coming out the um, the headset. Uh, no, not the headset. The um, the speaker above the screen. Was it? Was that one of the things where it? the phone thought that there was something in the headphone jack it thought it had a connection to something so it would send it out the headphone jack instead of out the built-in the ear speaker i think i think that's what it was Mm. yeah um because um yeah you could get any sound at all um i think unless you plugged in headphones so anyway that was apparently there was a small board in there and it was under warranty so the guy repaired it not a problem um but i mean this this iphone 4 is very fragile (laughs) In my experience, most Apple hardware has been pretty fragile relative to other brands that I've had. It was kind of funny because when I was in there, <laughs> um, I was like, well, this this phone, you know, it seems a little fragile. And the guy's like, well, actually, uh, the glass is uh, stronger. It's reinforced. And I'm like, apparently not. <laughs> I mean, this is the first – this is the first um, – uh, device that I've had that's actually had like a cracked screen and or cracked glass on it and it's cracked twice. I mean, 
I'm sure that um, any glass would crack when dropped on tile from nine feet. But I mean, I don't even know how this crack formed. It certainly didn't experience any trauma like that. Um, and he's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's stronger. I'm like, no, no. If it was stronger, it wouldn't have cracked. <laughs> <laughs> he said stronger, not impenetrable. And my my history of this thus far is that I actually, uh, for a period of time, I opted into the free case program, and I just got one of the stock bumpers. And in my infinite wisdom, one of the days that I was leaving work and walking out to my car, I had the dock connector plugged into the phone, and I had the phone... Um, the phone itself was pretty much as close to my neck as possible so that the dock connector could connect and the, the cable looped around my head and the USB end was on the other side. So in my infinite wisdom, I'm strolling through the parking lot, I'm walking back and forth, the phone and the wire are rocking around, and gasp, the friction of the dock connector uh, came apart. And the phone disconnected literally right as I was about to reach for my door handle and pull it open. The phone dropped and... Right onto the right onto the pavement, right onto the uh, parking lot. No problems. Um, there was a there was a noticeable gash in the material of the bumper on the corner that it had landed on, but I didn't. I still to this day have, to the best of my knowledge that I can see, uh, unbroken glass. Um, the only problems that I've gone into the Genius Bar for the phone itself was actually with my 3G that the... I had a similar issue, though I don't think it was related to the headphone jack, that the earpiece had just stopped working. So basically, 90% of the calls I make, I couldn't... I, it, would, it was a very one-sided conversation. Uh, and they replaced that just fine. But I don't think I've ever taken my iPhone 4 into Git service. And I've had it since... Since it was released, a couple months after it wasn't immediate. It was a, okay. uh, it was mid to late last year. Uh, I think like August or September, like that. And I haven't had any problems with it. And I've had my fair share of drops and that uh, that that little ensuing panic attack as soon as you do so because it is a predominantly glass device. Not to mention all the all the packed internals that God only knows what happens with it rattling around in there. Um. I've I've heard the horror stories like you're talking about, Kyle. Besides your own, there's a coworker of mine who got a iPod Touch for his brother as a birthday present, and I I don't know all the details, and obviously I'm not there, so I don't I I know that he said that the glass was cracked, but the digitizer and everything continued working, and I've seen that on plenty of other phones. It's it's circumstance, and there are there obviously are manufacturing variances that can cause these problems to happen. But I just haven't seen it to this level. In my experience, not even just for the phones, but for for other Apple stuff, it just the hardware is not really as durable as other other brands. Like my my MacBook, one of the the black plastic ones, right before they switched to the aluminum, was uh, I think I've had the the bottom case replaced, which is like the the keyboard and then the plastic on the bottom because my power button didn't work it like got stuck half the time and then i've had the optical drive on that replaced at least twice and i've had the hard drive on that replaced once and this was a computer that pretty much sat on my couch so i'm not i don't really know how this how that happened and then like my my ipods i've all have uh they've they've done actually reasonably well but they've all got kind of like scratches and dents and then like other stuff i 
like my phone, I drop it and it doesn't get a scratch at all. My phone's a different brand. And then like my, my camera is a Canon camera and I've dropped that way more times than I care to admit. And the only thing that's ever happened to it is that the little metal hot shoe that the flash plugs into, uh, got, got dented in because it landed right on that part, which looked nasty, but it was literally the the part I, I replaced the part myself to fix it and the part was literally less than a dollar. So I Apple stuff in my experience has really been it breaks a lot and costs a lot to fix. That's just been my experience. Uh, I don't know. Th- this is this, this is all very anecdotal. What we're saying right now, and right, just to just to kind of add on to the add on to the story a little bit more about myself. I consider myself to be of kind of a kind of a not not so much clumsy, but still a inadvertently kind of destructive person. Um, I had a Qualcomm or a Sanyo, some some flip phone back many many years ago, and I destroyed that thing and i was still using it for the last one or two months that i owned it the um so it was a flip phone so it had a hinge in the middle and that hinge had broken so it could just freely bend as far back as it would go until the you know the two pieces basically collided on the back and then the hinge itself i assume fell out because what the one side that the connector the the cover had broken on was just it, it, I could detach the screen from the keypad, and it still worked because the ribbon cable was still connected. But that phone, I destroyed that phone over the course of owning it and using it, and it was uh, because of all the breaking and the fracturing and the ability for it to bend. I had to use both hands to talk when it was still up to my ear, because uh, I had to hold the phone in place because. I would put my shoulder up to it, and I would hit the middle, so the phone would just fall, uh, because the two parts could detach completely. Um, I I have an unfortunate history with the Sidekick 2 that I had. I somehow managed to crack the screen. I assume it's like a pressure fracture while sitting in a chair that was admittedly kind of tight in a restaurant that actually had arms. Um, the Treo that we already talked about, I... I dropped it a number of times. The battery compartment would fall off easily the the stylus was apparently spring-loaded because most often when i would when i would drop it the stylus and the sd card would both spring out and launch (laughs) a couple feet uh and then just all of these you know all of these little cracks and whatnot that i'm sure were from keys that i would accidentally put into the same pocket or what have you i've had more problems with phones in the past than i have with the two iphones i've owned in the last uh two and a half to three years yeah i i I had pretty good luck with that 3g um, apart from the fact that it was slow um (laughs) and i i I, don't get me wrong i really really like my iphone 4 and i i like the design a lot i like you know the responsivity of it i love the screen but at the same time i think that in order to get that phone as thin as it is they had to make some compromises on like the glass (laughs) um and i think Back when the the iPhone four was first announced, and people were basically talking about Apple's claim that it was like aircraft aircraft quality glass or something like that, um, people were actually saying that uh, to make glass that uh, is resistant to scratches and to make glass that is resistant to cracking is actually two very different things, and that you 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 actually if you if you make something that is resist, resistant to scratching it will actually you know because it's harder it, it it's actually more susceptible to cracking 
And I, I suspect that's what happened is that, um, I mean, obviously this phone is only, um, a few months old cause I got replaced after the, um, dock connector thing, but the it, it, very, very few scratches on the device. Um, as opposed to like, you know, typically like the back of my, my <laughs> iPhone 3g cause it was plastic. It was <sighs> scratched quite a bit. And the shortcut they had to take with the glass was the fact that the digitizer and the entire the entire front capacitive system is glued to the glass. So if you crack it, you have to replace that entire assembly. And it, it can't be separate because they did that in order to get, get it as flush as possible and make, uh, make room for additional space in the rear of the device. You know, I, I can accept that. I mean, I accept that the, you know, the, the, the front panel, uh, maybe, maybe even the speaker and everything... Um, is all sort of one thing that might need to be replaced, but the idea that um, that they can't even do the repair, that they have to just sell you a new phone for two hundred dollars, is the only thing that they could possibly do to uh, repair, quote unquote, repair a, uh, uh, a crack on the front screen is kind of, I don't know, it's it's a little. It's un- not the only possible thing they can do. It's the only profitable thing they can do. Possibly. I mean, on, on iFixit, you can buy a $150 part that is just this front panel and all its, uh, all its stuff. You could replace just the, the glass and digitizer and that sort of stuff, but it costs so much. It, the, the price is so close to the price of the phone that it probably makes a lot more sense to Apple to just give you the new phone and not have to waste time on somebody servicing the old one, waste time and money on somebody that was going to be my point is that you're complaining about uh replacing what you could what you could buy from a third party for almost as much you you would pay $200 for Apple to take care of it or you would buy $150 for the for the part and have to do it yourself which can be quite a bit of a nightmare especially with the what do they call it the pentalobe screws i think and i've i've seen glass replacements a coworker of mine i remember walking into his office to talk to him and seeing a nexus glass replacement on there and he went through it but it was just the glass. You just had to loosen it up to get to that to get the frame off in order to get at the glass and replace it. Where with the with the iPhone, especially as we talked about, the digitizer being glued to the glass is, you know, that's that's something else. That's not just taking the the steel band off and dropping the new glass in and then securing the band again. That's half of the entire functioning aspect of the phone. Yeah, I mean, I, I I accept that. I understand that. Uh, but I'm, I think my, my primary point still stands is in that this is a relatively fragile phone. By comparison to many other. I, I certainly agree. Oh, yeah. And especially with that, the addition of the black glass, which is attractive but very issue-prone because it's just glass. Yeah, I mean, the fact that, you know, the entire thing is glass, it makes it very slippery, too. Yeah. So, it, you know, it makes it very easy for someone to drop it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll fix that with the iPhone 4. Maybe it'll – 5. Maybe <laughs> it'll be, you know, I have, like, a carbon fiber back or something like that. Or... I've seen, seen mock-ups that are metal. I think there was a rumor that it was going to have a metal back. So That would be pretty cool. Except that they they shied away from that after the, the uh, first one, right, because it was – bad for reception yeah but i suppose if they're if they're gonna reuse the idea of the you know the band around it is the antenna then they wouldn't need to have good reception inside (laughs) and continue gathering the ire of consumer reports 
<laughs> yeah. I don't know. I I I'm I I have a full a full case on right now. The bumper finally just uh, had too many too many divots and drops and damages and whatnot. So I switched to a. Oh, I don't even know what case this is. It doesn't matter. It's a it's a full case with a just an etching for the camera and the glass. And I remember before I got the case and after I ditched the bumper that I have gotten used to the fact of having something better than metal to grip onto. And just kind of looking at the device bare again, it's... Between the materials of this device itself and thinking of the MacBook Pro that I use on a daily basis that gets very, very hot, I'm... I'm definitely in the camp that something that you have to have physical contact with, that plastic is one of the best things that you can do for heat dissipation and, you know, your <laughs> the oils of your fingers lining it so that it actually has a fair amount of grip to it, uh, indirect grip. I, I liked the design of the first two, and this, this design right now, while very attractive, definitely has a lot of functionality uh, in terms of everything that I just mentioned, heat dissipation and grip and all those other things that you need to have to have a you know stable use. This is definitely lower on that list. It just looks so much better. You're talking about the iPhone 4 versus, versus the iPhone? The, uh, 3 and uh, the original iPhone and the iPhone 3G, yeah. Yeah. All of my devices except for my iMac and my iPods have clear plastic instead of glass. And yeah, the iMac and the iPods are a little bit prettier, but... There's, you know, looking at like my Dell display that's got plastic instead of glass. There's nothing wrong with it. It looks fine, and it's not glossy, so I don't hate it as much. <laughs> but, but, and it's especially on a mobile device, it's a completely worthwhile trade-off. I think. I, I guess Apple cares a lot about that kind of thing, and probably most people care more about the, uh, the how their their phone looks than how long it's gonna, how many drops it can sustain, but. It certainly would be worthwhile a worthwhile trade off for me. And there is the um, uh, the fact that uh, doing multi touch gestures and stuff is um, much better on a glass screen than it would ever be on a plastic screen. Oh uh, no, I haven't I haven't thought about that. None of my stuff's touch screen. Yeah, but I, I what I want them to do is to take all that glass on the back, throw it away. And put it all on the front <laughs> because the front is the thing that needs to be protected. Uh, the back, you know, throw a case on it, whatever, you know, put a metal back, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Um, but the front, you know, the gla- that glass needs to be thick enough to support people dropping it, banging it, you know, whatever. I know a lot of people say that Apple is all form over function and I don't agree with that to the fullest extent. I think that they feel that form is just as important as function, however. And it shows. In, in the grand scheme of things, it really shows. Yeah. Uh, so I I think we should probably move on to our question of the week. And it is, why do I have to drag new apps into the applications folder? This was asked by Drew on June 4th. Did you guys want to just take this away? This question is really interesting. Um, it's something that I've heard about off and on, and I've really never given it thought. Um, I, I don't know where exactly the experience comes from, but when I think back to when I used the, I believe it was OS 7 Apple back in school, I didn't really install things on there. Maybe I might have seen the teacher do it. I, I don't entirely remember. 
Um, but when I first bought the Mac Mini that I, the very first Mac Mini that I bought that was still running Tiger at the time, um, I don't think I ever had to ask for help, and I think I just always regarded the disk images as folders. And me being me having the organizational intent that I do, I put all my applications in the same place, so it just kind of made sense to me. Um, but with people that are more inclined with installers taking care of it for you or no organization whatsoever and just th – there have been a handful of people that I've seen that have run applications out of disk images – Weirdly enough, those people never complain about speed, but, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, it's the organizational aspect of just being presented the application and doing something with it so that you can get rid of its shell, that being the disk image, makes sense to me. Um, but that's me. <laughs> but to me, the difference is downloading something, double-clicking it to, to unpack it or whatever, and then clicking install and then continue, continue, agree, continue. <laughs> versus versus having something that you download, you double-click to unpack or mount, and then dragging it onto another icon like any nicely made disk image should have for installers. It should have the icon of the app, an alias to your applications folder, a little arrow. And any Those extras are the... that are pertinent to the application. Right, yeah, readme's and that sort of thing available. Yeah. Although that is that is such a common sort of workflow where you were, you have the applications folder link in the disk image that I'm surprised that um, that there isn't some sort of shortcut like some sort of you know not not so much an installer like I know Mac OS has like the, those installers but just something that says oh you know this this disk image is designed to be a an application disk image do you want to copy the contents to your applications folder uh, but I think it's going to be moot point anyway uh, with line because uh, in theory, no one will ever use those disk images anymore. They'll all they'll all just get everything through the Mac App Store, and then what? it'll just go right into their launchpad. I've I've installed plenty of stuff from disk images on the on on Lion. It's it's well, just it you know not everything is is something that should be on the Mac App Store. Right. And, no. Yeah. I'm just I'm just sort of saying it from Apple's perspective. Oh yeah, that, probably. You know, uh, they they wouldn't invest any more time, money, effort, whatever, into making the disk image. Uh, as a container for an application. Uh, oh, I see. So thing. you're yeah, right. Why we shouldn't expect a new feature, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, my my cousin who asks me for computer help sometimes. It she um, has lots of apps that she just likes to download the disk image and then open up the app off the disk image with a nice pretty background, and that's usually okay. She doesn't seem to mind it. The the only and you know I guess I'm okay with it since I don't have to use her computer, but the only time that it really really makes me grind my teeth is where for for apps that are a big and heavy and b open at login, like she's got Skype on a disk image set to open at login, and so whenever she logs in, you know, she, and she logs in and out frequently because it's a shared computer and she doesn't use fast user switching and that sort of stuff, but um, she whenever she logs in, she has to wait. For the disk image to mount and verify and all that other stuff that Mac OS X does. And then she has to wait for Skype to open off the disk image. And the other problem with that is that her finder sidebar is unusable because of all the <laughs> 80 gazillion disk images in there. And her desktop, where she saves everything, is even more cluttered than it would be. She's got, uh, and that, that's her downloads folder too, stuff that she downloads goes there. So whenever she downloads an app that doesn't wrap it in a zip or a disk image, it's just the raw dot app 
that goes on her desktop so she doesn't drag stuff to her applications folder and she doesn't uh delete the disk images and so even even for stuff she doesn't use anymore and so i guess the the advantage of the disk image installer kind of uh idiom is that it's really convenient and it's easy to do and but the disadvantage is that if people don't decide to do it it it, let me rephrase that the disadvantage is that it's so attractive that people will just use it as is and not decide to to take the extra step of moving the app into their applications folder or off their desktop you know anything like that and that does have a performance cost and a convenience cost and the stuff I talked about already. I've also seen people that actually they keep a separate applications folder in their home folder. And instead of dragging their applications into the, you know, slash applications, they'll basically drag it into their own version of applications. That comes on that. That's a, or maybe it's not by, I bet it was Adobe that added that on mine. Is that in Mac OS 10 by default? I don't know. It's it, it, okay. the applications folder is not in your home folder by default. Uh, although okay. I believe if you if you create a folder that's you know applications in your home folder, then macOS 10 is smart enough that it will sort of uh, apl- apply the appropriate um, icons to it. So right. It looks like. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly does. I uh, I I only use that for apps that I don't want other people to have to. If if if, if a I'm on a shared computer and b it's an app that I don't want other people ha- to have to. Uh, deal with or look at or an app that if somebody random opened it could cause problems right and it's also it's it's useful for people in like a like a again like a shared computing environment um like i'm just sort of thinking like uh sort of like a hypothetical university kind of situation where you know university might have a bunch of macs in um like a computer lab and each uh each student has their own login and that login mounts the uh, the user's um, a home directory is sort of like a sort of separate kind of thing, but it disallows any access to the actual system. So people aren't allowed to, you know, put anything in the actual applications folder that, that, that students could in theory download their own applications, stick them in their own applications folder in their home directories, and then sort of have that anywhere they go sort of logging into multiple computers. And it's actually, it's it, in one way, it's sort of acts as a significant advantage over the, the Linux sort of, model where in linux you know if you don't actually have root access and you don't have access to like the uh you know package managers then installing stuff is a huge pain you have to like get the stuff from like the source you have to like tell the source to use like certain prefixes so it doesn't it doesn't compile it you know expecting to be in the traditional place and you know you got to put that in your separate place and then add that to your uh your path it's just a huge pain and with with mac os 10 you just oh well you know you don't have uh access to put this application in the you know slash applications folder just you know just put it anywhere in your home folder and then you can still launch it so uh, you know for certain environments it it's also provides a huge benefit to be able to have that flexibility of putting the applications in different places and, and have them still work except uh, except the, the mac app store only goes to the root applications folder and there's a question on ask different that i remember that asks about whether or not users who are not admin can install new apps and the answer is no you can't look at somebody pointed to a uh, a mac app store help file that said you need an administrator name and password to to install something from the mac app store and i don't know how long that's going to be true 
but it seems kind of limiting to me. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. Um, yeah. Let me pull that up. And here I thought that I was going to be the one to introduce the Linux idiom into this conversation. Uh, <laughs> my my two cents is that installing things locally into your home in, into your own home directory is not really too terribly worse than installing it anywhere else, because everything has its own little magical incantation that you have to do in order to get it there in the first place. And in the case of in the case of a Linux distribution called SourceMage, it is a magical incantation to install software. As a matter of fact. Um, I have on my laptop right now, I symlink a bin directory to a local applications directory, an applications folder in my home folder. And I have a couple of, a couple of cross-platform applications that aren't quite smart enough to integrate into the multi-user paradigm. But then I also have a bunch of scripts that I run sitting in the applications directory and by extensions, the bin directory. Um, there was a time when I synchronized a lot of things, including a lot of environment variables, and that's why the bin symlink exists, because I set my path to look in my home folder first and then consider the rest of the system, the rest of the system inherited directories. Uh, not so much the case anymore, but I still kind of work by it because my, my muscle memory has been trained in that manner. Um, it's not hard to me, but that's not necessarily saying much because I went from Windows to Linux for years until to Mac OS X in the last, really actively, only the last four years or so. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I could sort of be betraying my um, lack of experience using Linux, but it just, it, it seemed to me to be like so antediluvian. And the, the, you bigger, know? the bigger issue is the fact that developers the the fact that linux uh delivery systems don't ship binaries and that's because there are there's the history of so many different architectures and whatnot um the the big exception of that is package managers such as uh, ubuntu and debian's um wow ubuntu, uh, aptgit specifically being the back end and then distributing rpms and whatnot and in the case <laughs> in, in the case of my preference of linux distribution that being gentoo I don't get binaries at all. Even things that I use the package manager for, the portage package manager, everything gets compiled from scratch. And that's because Gen2 works on works for works with the Linux kernel and can run on top of FreeBSD. And because there is the MIPS architecture, the PowerPC architecture, the uh, 32-bit and 64-bit Intel architectures, the um, I... Oh, what is Intel's other architecture called? Um, Itanium? Yeah, there you go. The Itanium architecture, the S390, which I think is something in the Solaris world. Uh, MIPS, if I didn't say that already. I think that might have been the first one. But yeah, you did. Yeah, the, the architecture list is like 10 long, and then there's the complete difference of the, the Linux kernel and the Darwin FreeBSD kernel. No, the FreeBSD kernel. Darwin is Apple. I'm sorry. Um and it's that it's that flexibility that necessitates that when people do a release that they don't have 20 different computers to ship binaries for all of these things that's something that only an enterprise would do when developers do things write things to be as cross platform compatible as possible and they rely on your compiling tool chain to set it up specific to to compile it and render it as appropriate for your environment well i mean mac os 10 you know has sort of an ingenious solution to this and that's the quote-unquote fat binaries um i mean there was a time you know back when universal binaries were quite popular that you would have you know your 64-bit power pc you'd have your 32-bit intel and your 64-bit intel um 
binaries all packaged up into one one unit that you could then just sort of drop anywhere. Yeah. And I think nowadays um, it's, you, you know, you, you can afford having, you know, an application that's, say, 20 megabytes instead of 5 megabytes if it's going to give you uh, the ability just to download it, pop it in, and, and start running with it right away. I think the sort of compile everything is from a, a time when it was, you know, it, the, when the, the actual clock cycles were more important. Um uh, to be able to sort of squeeze out of your individual apps, and it, it was it was more important to be able to have the the minimal file sizes. Whereas today, I mean, you know, I'm I'm worried about 80 gigs of, of iTunes music. I mean, what about an 80 gig application? You know, those don't even exist. Mm-hmm. You know, applications are not the big things on computers anymore like they used to be. I don't know if you installed the entirety of the Adobe suite that's universal, you might you might hit that file size. Possibly, but I I would wager that a lot of that is uh, supplementary material. Yeah, other languages. That's why a lot of these applications that strip out all the things you don't need are so popular. They'll kill the architectures that you don't need. They'll kill the languages that you don't use. And they can save you a massive amount of space because, yes, a lot of this stuff does get bundled in. But, I mean, we're, we're talking about... We're talking about the days of sub-megabyte hard drives or even to bring it even reasonably closer to today. I still use a server day in and day out as a part of my day job that has a series of 16-gig SCSI drives. And I think it's a it's either a 6- or an 8-slot drive with uh, hot spares. So the total usable space on that computer is less than 80 gigs. And we use it for a lot of various mission-critical things that people can't just start dumping data on it willy-nilly. It either has to come in from an outside source or it just doesn't go onto that server whatsoever. And then I'm staring at I'm staring my computer in the face, and its 500-gig hard drive is smiling back at me. Yeah, the, 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 you're, you're absolutely right in that a lot of this comes out of hard drive. Uh, hard drive the, the need to cram everything into much smaller hard drive uh, applications that didn't make sense either a lot of the need comes from saving as much space as possible but even windows still doesn't ship universal installers so many windows uh applications ship a 64-bit and a 32-bit uh 32-bit uh 32-bit 64-bit installer well i think that's largely because um windows itself doesn't support that so you have to do that but i mean mac os 10 sort of took the the forward-looking approach and said um 32-bit, 64-bit, it will make the distinction irrelevant to the user and uh, a, very, a very simple thing to manage in, from the perspective of the developer. So, uh, I mean, yeah, they're using more more disk space and, and, and stuff like that for shipping multiple binaries of the same thing. But ultimately, um, it, it just makes it so much easier for the end user. To, to manage yeah the, the user has to stop caring the packager the packager who does this thing anyways has to know and has to do it and the user can stop caring it's it's putting the convenience and in my opinion an absolutely more appropriate place yeah and that is why you have to drag your applications to the applications folder <laughs> all right <laughs> um our app of the week this week is divi and i'm going to let the experts in Divi, take this away. It's a window manager. Wow. Like, All right. <laughs> it's a window manager. It, okay, thanks for listening. Um. It, the, the goal of a window manager 
is to help you arrange your windows on on your screen or screens and that's that's what Divi tries to do and Divi does it very well. It's I've I've tried several window managers and Divi is the most reliable by far that I've used and it is also has a very very clean interface. The way that it works is you press a key shortcut or click the icon in your menu bar and then it shows, you know, the the name of the app and the icon so you can get you can make sure it's going to be resizing the right thing. And then it's got a grid of squares. And you basically click and drag over those squares, and whichever and the, the, those squares represent your screen. And so, if you say you drag just the top row of squares, then if you've got four rows, then the the the, the active window resizes to the top quarter of your screen. And you can you can change the uh, the resolution of the squares. So you could make your whole display two squares, or you could make it what does it go up to? Something something very high, like 64 or something. Mm-hmm. And you can bind keyboard shortcuts to specific uh, presets. So I've got it shortcuts for the basics, so maximize to the whole screen or to the left half or the right half. And those are bound to macros on my keyboard. And I, since I started using Divi, I've saved a whole lot of time in terms of not having to use this unpredictable zoom button or drag stuff around and use the the bottom right corner to resize it's 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 very useful and the other the other really useful feature of divi for me is that there's a preference that you can turn on where if you push a keyboard shortcut that you've bound to a, a preset layout if you push it twice it'll toggle back it'll it'll cycle through your displays so if i've got something on my other monitor that i keep connected but usually turned off unless i need it Sometimes, if I've last if I last had an app open on that other screen, it'll open there, and I won't be able to see it. But then I just push this keyboard shortcut twice, and the first time it maximizes to the other screen, and the second time it maximizes onto my main screen. I didn't know about that feature. I've actually had a lot of second screen problems with this. I, I uh, think I, I think I tried to make a full screen first, uh, for a uh, full screen primary screen button and a full-screen secondary screen shortcut. And I, if I remember correctly, the secondary screen one never worked. It always went back to the first one. I was completely unaware that it would cycle like that. Um, yeah. The, 90, the 90% solution that I bought Divi for in the first place was because I screen real estate is very important to me. And when I'm seen, when I'm working with someone and they have these applications just kind of strewn about and generally resized to use, you know, whatever division if they have one main application in the left half and two smaller ones in the right half. They, they it's just so imprecise and they wind up wasting so much space that usually winds up becoming an issue. Uh I bought Divi because it gives you a nicely gridded layout with the the general purpose that you can very quickly take any corner or any half or anything of that of the screen. And if you need to start getting minute, you tap the option button when the grid is open. And as you said, you get a, I believe it's ultimately a 64. It's a 16 by 16 grid of a a more fine grain cutout of your screen. Um, It's, it's very quick. It's a very well thought out interface and it's ridiculously flexible. That's the, the, the flexibility is the part that makes this the best. Um, Probably be 
even though I'm as much of a keyboard person that I've said over and over, I really don't use the keyboard shortcuts, but that's generally because the way that I work is that I just want everything to take up the entirety of my space, and I just application switch whenever necessary. I used to use a, a similar one called uh, uh, Size Up, um, and basically it, was, it, it wasn't it was as fine-grained where you could sort of select the like the specific areas of the screen that you want. Uh, basically what it would do is you would have keyboard shortcuts that would enable you to um, take the, the, the currently running app and then throw it either into the left half, the right half, the top half, or the bottom half of the screen. And you could do this for multiple monitors or whatever. And just so it made it easy, like if you had like two things you wanted to have up simultaneously, you know, you could just go to the first one. Okay, left half of the screen, go to the second one. Okay, right half of the screen. And it would just, you know, would just put them up like that. Um, but I, I think one of the interesting things about Divi is that, you know, because obviously not everything is of the same width that, you know, you might want to, say, throw up uh, an instant messenger on the right fifth of your screen and then use, um, have, have everything else on the left four-fifths of your screen kind of, and, and it enables you to, to sort of have multiple configurations like that. Yeah, I've done that a number of times. I've done a lot of half and half splits, but whenever there's something like just a, a, a short laundry list of notes that I've wanted to refer to, I've put it um, not as small as possible because that, that 64, uh, 16 by 16 grid can get very unruly very quickly. But just in the general 6 by 6 grid, I'll take something that takes the first one single column along the far right-hand side of the screen, and any application that I want to use in tandem and actually get side by side, you just drag the left five by six um and you have you have a complete space saving arrangement in no time at all but now that you mentioned that i can actually cycle screens in that way i think i might revisit keyboard shortcuts that's really helpful another big benefit to anyone who has to work uh, cross-platform is that there is an identical windows version available and this is one of the things that this window management is one of the things that bugs me most about having to switch between between Windows and uh, Mac OS X, because I've got all my hot corners set up. I've got my expose mouse button set up. All this all this stuff that is since since I switch Windows and apps so much, it's so so much a part of my muscle muscle memory, probably more than any other shortcut. That it really it really is kind of a nasty shock to have to use. Uh, to, to have to use a, a different kind of a window manager on a different platform that works differently with different shortcuts. It's really, really hard for me to adjust to. And so this is great that when I do have to work on Windows machines, I can just use the same thing. Yeah, I actually, I came up with a, a better solution than that, actually. Um, and, and that's, don't use Windows. <laughs> <laughs> some of us don't have a choice. Some of us in some locations, yeah, I can, can certainly understand that too. Less so since you know I'm using me and Kyle are both using laptops, but I certainly uh, I certainly respect the issue of when you're forced to be using somebody else's. Um, we know that Windows Seven has the feature. I don't think it's on by default, but you can turn on the ability to if you drag a window to the bounds of the right hand side, it'll snap it to the right, I and think then that is, that is on I, by default. Not using it enough to yeah. know. <laughs> um, you, you drag something <laughs> to the top bounds, it does a little maximizing. Uh, uh, outline gesture you let go and it maximizes the screen uh, it maximizes the window which is odd considering that the maximize button is actually consistent in windows 
But at any rate, it'll do the left half, yeah. it'll do the right half, it'll maximize. And does it also minimize if you drag it to the bottom, or is there no gesture on the bottom? I don't know. I haven't explored yeah. it. But th- this is one of those. Th- this is one of those points to make with Divi is that you have the flexibility of any arrangement you want, and not just half and half or full full size. Yeah, that is that is pretty good. So Divi is uh, developed and released by Mizage LLC. It is fourteen dollars on the Mac App Store, and there will of course be a link in our show notes. Yes. This has been the Ask Different Podcast. You can find us in iTunes by searching for Ask Different Podcast, or you can sc- subscribe to us uh, via RSS. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like for us to answer on the show, you can email us at podcast at askdifferent.net. Thank you for listening.